Well, thank you, Josh. It's uh, great to be here tonight, and uh, welcome. Um, so, the, uh, the tonight's title is, Does God Exist? A Reasonable Faith or Just a Delusion? And uh, the basic format, well, I guess you give us the basic format, that's fine, yeah, well, that'll work. Oh, the pub closes at nine, so we have to be out by nine, but uh, I'll be done by, by eight, or maybe before, we'll see. Um, so, I'm, I'm making some um, assumptions tonight. Um, my assumptions are that some of you, because I, I know you, I recognize you, are, you know, fully paid up, card-carrying members of the Christian faith. You attend a church, whether that's Ascension, where I'm the senior pastor, or some other church of other denominations. Um, I'm thinking that some of you are here because you are interested in the question. Maybe someone invited you, or you were bullied to be here. You may not be an active churchgoer. You may not be a Christian, or you're not even quite sure what that means. Fine, well, I'm glad you're here. Um, and some of you might be here because, actually, uh, you're pretty sure you do know the answer to tonight's question, and you would say categorically that God does not exist. And maybe you're here uh, for a little bit of sport to see what kind of nonsense I've got to say about it. Maybe you're a big fan of uh, Richard Dawkins or the late Christopher Hitchens. Um, we'll see. Well, uh, whatever the reason, I'm glad you're here. And uh, if you think I am talking complete rubbish, then enjoy the fine food of this wonderful establishment. Um, I do need to make some disclaimers before I get into this. And the first is, uh, I am not a scientist, um, although I'm going to be talking a little bit about the intersection of science and religion. Uh, I'm, I'm a clergyman who you know, used to be a lawyer. Uh, I'm not a professional theologian. I'm just a parish priest. Uh, I'm not a philosopher, because I've spent most of my life uh, arguing and debating and wrestling with questions about life and faith and religion. So what does qualify me to speak on this subject? Well, I'm obviously pretty interested uh, in the answer to the question of whether or not God exists. Indeed, if the atheists are right and God does not exist, then either I'm a fraud for being a Christian minister uh, or just plain stupid, or at the very least someone who is rather naive and you should probably pity me. Um, of course, I don't think the atheists are right, and I hope over the course of the next four Sunday evenings uh, we may come to see why. Uh, but back to what qualifies me to speak on this subject. Um, I take the view that the answer to this question, this most profound and basic question of life, does God exist? Uh, a question that's been asked for millennia uh, ought to be accessible enough to fairly ordinary people, whether they be uber smart uh, or not. And I put myself in the category of someone who is reasonably intelligent and therefore if there is a God uh, ought to be able to encounter that God and know at least enough about that God to have some response and I should add I'm always a little bit sceptical of people that tell us that we have to uh, always defer to the experts you know when I was a trial lawyer in England from time to time it was of course necessary to call expert witnesses but the evidence from expert witnesses never trump the decision of the jury. The people charged with deciding in a criminal case whether someone was innocent or guilty were not experts. They were 12 members of the public whose expertise was that they were ordinary people who the hope was were perfectly capable of assessing whether someone was telling the truth or not, whether evidence was reliable or not, and were well qualified to sniff out BS. Um, and finally, by way of introduction, why, why are we doing this? 
Well, the idea uh, for this came to me last summer when I really first came across the new atheism. Now, of course, at one level, there's absolutely nothing new about atheism. Uh, the belief that there is no God has been around for a very long time. But I realized that there was something different about what the new atheists were saying, or perhaps I should say were preaching, given that they definitely have an agenda which goes beyond merely not believing in God. And given the vehemence and vitriol that some of the proponents of new atheism have, they are manifestly not just atheists. Rather, they are fanatical about it. You could say even religious about it, even fundamentalist about it. But if that's too pejorative for you, let me just say they are positively against faith. It was this that fascinated me and frankly bothered me. And as I looked at it more, I thought this might be a topic worth doing uh, some study on and teaching a class on. So here we are. So first, who are the new atheists and what are they saying? Um, how many of you are familiar with new atheism in general? That's about, I would say, a third of you, okay? There are four big names that you will encounter, and they're sometimes referred to as the four horsemen of new atheism, and they are Richard Dawkins, uh, Oxford University Professor of Public Understanding of Science and author of a lot of books, including the very popular uh, The Selfish Gene, The Blind Watchmaker, and his bestseller, The God Delusion. Hence the title of tonight's talk, subtitle. Um, then there's the late Christopher Hitchens, journalist and author of God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. There's a little bit of a hint at their agenda, but anyway, there you go. Uh, Sam Harris, a philosopher and neuroscientist, author of The End of Faith and uh, The Moral Landscape, How Science Can Determine Human Values. And the fourth is Dan Dennett, a philosopher, writer, and cognitive scientist, author of Darwin's Dangerous Idea, Evolution and the Meaning of Life, and Breaking his Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon. Newsweek magazine said this, Dan Dennett and Sam Harris are not writing polite demurals to the time-honoured beliefs of billions. They are not issuing pleas for tolerance or moderation, but bone-rattling attacks on what they regard as pernicious and outdated superstition. Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, writes, I am not attacking any particular version of God or gods. Um, I am attacking God, all gods, anything and everything supernatural, wherever and whenever they have been or will be invented. He also says of that same book that he wrote, If this book works as I intend, religious readers who open it will be atheists when they put it out. So clearly they have an agenda. Um, of course, he doesn't actually think that that's terribly likely to happen, for as he puts it, dyed-in-the-wool faith heads are immune to argument. So you're kind of damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Anyway, uh, one of my frustrations with reading the material of the New Atheists has been the persistent hectoring tone that belittles all faith, and Christian faith in particular. The tone they, they adopt is one of incredulity, how could anyone be so ignorant as to believe in this God stuff, given that there isn't a scrap of evidence for any of it? And damning, sweeping sentiments like that, I suspect, probably don't do their cause much good. Writing in uh, Scientific American ten years ago, Harvard professor, the late Stephen Jay Gould, um, himself an atheist, uh, made it clear that he was absolutely sure that the natural sciences 
including evolutionary theory, were consistent with both atheism and um, conventional religious belief. Unless half his scientific colleagues were total fools, presumption that Gould dismissed as nonsense, whichever half it applied to, uh, there could be no other reasonable way of making sense of the varied responses to the reality on the part of the intelligent, informed people that he knew. You know, namely that half of his good scientific friends were believers and half of them weren't. I mention this here because if you read Hitchens and Dawkins in particular, you start to question your own sanity. You might be tempted to think, if you're a believer in God, that you must necessarily be a very strange and rather stupid person. For no sensible, educated, serious-thinking person could ever possibly conclude that there is a God. This is, of course, patently false, for there are millions of perfectly well-educated thinking people who do. Uh, again, I say this not to play a numbers game, uh, that just because millions of people believe it, it must be true. But of course, that's not the case. But rather to say it's not intrinsically, obviously, manifestly irrational to believe in God, as the new atheists like to suggest. Now, of course, Richard Dawkins is a pretty uh, smart and capable man. Indeed, in November 2005, readers of Prospect magazine voted him one of the world's three leading intellectuals. However, a reviewer of that same magazine reviewed The God Delusion uh, under the title Dawkins the Dogmatist and, and wrote that he was shocked at this incurious, dogmatic, rambling and self-contradictory book. Dawkins asserts that belief in God is basically on the same level as believing in the tooth fairy or Santa Claus. And as soon as most people are capable of evidence-based thinking, such childish beliefs are abandoned. The trouble with that kind of statement is that it doesn't really address why so many people come to faith later in life. As Oxford theologian Alistair McGrath likes to ask, how many people do you know who began to believe in tooth fairy in adult life? Dawkins asserts, what matters is not whether God is disprovable, he isn't, but whether his existence is probable. Well, I agree with the first sentiment, but not the second. The real issue is not whether God is probable, but whether he's actual. On probability alone, none of us should be here. Indeed, the chances of a planet like Earth with life on it are infinitesimally small, but we're here, so probability is perhaps not the most important thing. Likewise, with God, however improbable you or I may think the existence of God, of an all-knowing, all-powerful living God is, my contention is that he is real, and I, and I hope we'll get, come back to that in, in a minute. The new atheists would like to see the end of all religion. They view religious belief in general, and Christianity in particular, as dangerous, immoral, and the cause of great harm in our world. Fundamentally, they are all agreed that God does not exist and is just a delusion. Indeed, the word God doesn't stand for anything that is real. Science, they say, is the only basis for knowledge. Only the physical world is real. Ethics and morality don't need God or religion. Indeed, they can be explained by evolutionary theory. Although the four horsemen are anti-religion in all shapes and sizes, they do seem to reserve their most severe criticism for Christianity. I think the polemic anti-Christian rhetoric may at least in part be a rise 
be a reaction to the rise of religious fanaticism and fundamentalism that we've all seen you know, over the past, I don't know, a couple of decades. And certainly adherents of many of the world's religions have hardly helped themselves. Radicalism and fundamentalism, whether in Islamic or Christian forms, you know, are not a pretty sight. And sadly, I would say, and I realize now I might prickle, some of you might prickle, uh, but you know, here in the States, those who want to outlaw the teaching of evolution in our schools are not helping us in any way, I would say. And obviously, those who are homophobic, self-righteous, or violent towards those who carry out abortions, that only adds fuel to the fire um, that is ignited against Christian believers. Well, before I turn to some of the classic reasons for believing in God, I want to say one more thing about the perceived clash between science and religion, because I think it's, it's really very uh, unhelpful and unfair and untrue. Uh, atheist uh, Gould, Stephen Gould used to speak of the non-overlapping magisterium of science and religion, which I think is quite an interesting concept. Um, Alistair McGrath speaks of this. He says, of Gould's view, uh, the magisterium of science, on Gould's view, the magisterium of science deals with the empirical realm, whereas the magisterium of religion deals with questions of ultimate meaning. You know, the term magisterium is best understood as a sphere of authority or a domain of competency. Gould holds that these two magisteria don't overlap. And McGrath says, I think he's wrong. Um, Dawkins also thinks he's wrong, although for a very different reason. For Dawkins, there's only one magisterium, empirical reality. That's the only reality that actually exists. Uh, and the idea of allowing theology to speak about anything is completely outrageous to Dawkins. Uh, why are scientists so cravenly respectful towards the ambitions of theologians? over questions that theologians are certainly no more qualified to answer than scientists themselves. Which, you know, it's an interesting piece of rhetoric, but it doesn't even begin to address the issues that Gould has raised between these two spheres and the ways of understanding things. Um, but Alistair McGrath talks about a third option, which is that of partially overlapping magisteria, which reflects a realization that science and religion offer possibilities of cross-fertilization uh, on account of the interpretation of their subjects and methods. And one very uh, helpful, more recent proponent of this view is Francis Collins. Francis Collins is an evolutionary biologist who was the head of the Human Genome Project. So a pretty smart guy. Um, Collins speaks of a richly satisfying harmony between the scientific and spiritual worldviews. You know, 50 years ago, atheists were saying that religion would die out. And yet today, more people than ever believe in God. Now, that, again, that doesn't prove anything. A lot of people could be wrong. But it is at least interesting to wonder why a 400-page book by Dawkins is needed if it's all such manifest rubbish that's dying out. Clearly tonight, I can only scratch the surface on what are some really pretty huge uh, topics. Um, but I do want to try and make the case for why I firmly believe that belief in God is, at the very least, reasonable, and not the stuff of belief in celestial teapots or tooth fairies as charged by the new atheists. So what can we say, not so much in response to the criticisms and objections, but on our own behalf, for why belief in God is not delusional, but on the contrary is reasonable? 
And I'm going to touch on three of the classic arguments uh, for the existence of God. By the way, these are not proofs, uh, but I think they do cumulatively build a case for the reasonableness of faith. And I hope ultimately form a backdrop for people to take individual responses and steps of faith. So the first is the cosmological argument for the existence of God. Um, who's heard of that? Just, just per chance? Okay, quite a few of you, but a few of you have. Um, it's an argument that really goes from, from existence, the fact that we exist, that points to there being a prime mover. You know, the cosmos, hence the term cosmological, the cosmos is here, so something or someone must have caused it to come into being, because things don't just spontaneously appear. And the argument is sometimes referred to as an argument from contingency. The scientific evidence for the beginning of the universe is, in current thinking, based on uh, the expansion of the universe. According to the Big Bang Theory, physical time and space, along with all matter and energy in the universe, came into being at a particular moment in the past. You've probably heard about the universe expanding. Well, if you think about that, if you go backwards from expanding, obviously it starts to funnel down to an actual point in time. And that's the Big Bang. And scientists believe this about 14 billion years ago, this huge burst of energy brought into being everything that, that then evolved and evolved into what we have. Um, so let me read to you uh, a brief extract from Collins's book, The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. By the way, um, I've brought a few books today that if you're interested in this, this is quite a very easy to read but very helpful, very serious scientist talking about some of this stuff. Anyway, uh, he says this, the existence of the Big Bang begs the question of what came before that and who or what was responsible. It certainly demonstrates the limits of science as no other phenomenon has. The consequences of Big Bang theory for theology are profound. For faith traditions that describe the universe as having been created by God from nothingness, ex nihilo, this is an electrifying outcome. And Collins says, does such an event as the Big Bang fit the definition of miracle? The sense of awe created by these realizations has caused more than a few agnostic scientists to sound downright theological. In God and the Astronomers, uh, the self-proclaimed agnostic, uh, astrophysicist, he was a former leading NASA scientist, a fellow called, he, he's dead now, Robert Jastrow, wrote uh, this paragraph at the, at the end of his book. At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He's scaled the mountain of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> for those looking to bring the theologians and the scientists together, there's uh, much in these recent discoveries of the origin of the universe to inspire mutual appreciation. Uh, now we see how the astronomical uh, evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. This is Jastrow again, this, this NASA guy. The details differ, but the essential elements and the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly 
and sharply at a definitive moment in time in a flash of light and energy. This is a top NASA scientist. You recall how the Bible begins, in the beginning, um, when God created the heavens and the earth, two verses later, and God said, let there be light. Stunning, I think. Anyway, uh, in that final quote from uh, Jastrow in an interview in 82, astronomers now find they have painted themselves into a corner because they've proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and the earth. And they have found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. That they, that they are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. Theologian and philosopher William Craig asks, what properties... Because again, all we've, all we've established so far is that something's behind the Big Bang. It doesn't tell us a great deal about God, except that it's reasonable to think that there is something behind the Big Bang. Um, so, uh, William Lane Craig says, what properties must the cause of the universe have? Clearly, the cause of the universe within which time and space are constrained. So you can't think about time and space outside of the universe very easily, because... It's all kind of contained within it. It's not possible. Um, so he's saying whatever cause there was must transcend time and space and must exist, therefore, timelessly and non-spatially. The transcendent cause must, therefore, be changeless and immaterial. Such an ent entity must be beginningless and uncaused, since there cannot be an infinite regression of causes. Again, that, this is philosophy. This is, you know, you have to get your head into a bit of a twist for this. Uh, Occam's razor, it's kind of principle that states you shouldn't multiply causes beyond necessity, will shave away other causes since only one is required to explain the effect. This entity must be unimaginably powerful, if not omnipotent, since it created the universe without any material cause. And then finally, most remarkably, he writes, such a transcendent first cause is plausibly personal. Two reasons can be given for this conclusion. First, the personhood of the first cause of the universe is implied by timelessness and immateriality. Think about it. The only entities which can possess timelessness and immateriality are either minds or abstract objects like numbers. But abstract objects don't stand in causal relations. The number seven, for example, can't cause anything. Therefore, the transcendent cause of the origin of the universe must be an unembodied mind. Well, you're still with me, that's good. Uh, that's as much as I'm going to say about the cosmological argument. I want to talk about the second uh, argument for the existence of God. It's the moral argument. This is a little bit more easy to get your head around. If there is no God, then there are no absolute standards of morality. In such a world, uh, each person is a law unto his or herself. Except, of course, there's almost nobody who actually believes that. Uh, do they? I mean, many atheists and agnostics absolutely have high moral standards. They do. But where do they come from? I believe that a sense of right and wrong is hardwired into every human being. Let's face it, it isn't terribly useful 
for evolutionary natural selection purposes to look after the sick and the dying or care for the weakest people. That doesn't make for the survival of the fittest. Yet few atheists would say that it's okay to pull the plug on all the old, sick, weak, or dying people. And yet, if we are no more than a biological collection of atoms and molecules, if that's all there is and nothing more, why not? What's the big deal? At its most basic level, the moral argument goes like this. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. But two, objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. I mean, it's kind of simplistic, but it, it's, it's quite profound as well. Um, now, Dawkins writes, the universe has no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Now, most scientists would not agree with that statement. Indeed, such a conclusion, I would say, goes way beyond the realms of science. That's a, that's a, a life view, a philosophical view. It's not a scientific view. Um, Oxford professor Alistair McGrath, again, writes... The intellectual vitality of the natural sciences lies in their being able to say something about the meaning of life and should not be expected to, still less forced, to say everything. To demand that science answer questions that lie beyond its sphere of competence is potentially to bring it into disrepute. Science, frankly, cannot answer the ultimate life questions, such as, what are we here for? Or what's the point of living? Science just can't answer those questions. Uh, Dawkins is right when he says science has no methods for deciding what is ethical. This limits the realm of science. It does not mean that we cannot look for other bases for morality. McGrath writes, science is amoral, which is precisely why we turn to other things for developing a moral framework. We need transcendent narratives to provide us with moral guidance, social purpose, and a sense of uh, personal identity. And... Uh, Another good book I'd recommend is, is Alistair's book, Surprised by Meaning, Science, Faith, and How We Make Sense of Things. Again, it's very readable stuff, and uh, commend that to you. All right, are you still with me? Okay, third, third classical argument for the existence of God. Um, the teleological argument for the existence of God. Who's heard of the teleological argument? Yep, okay, some of you have also done some uh, philosophy at uh, university, I guess. Well, it comes from the Greek word... Telos meaning end or purpose, and the argument is based on the design and fine-tuning of the universe, which, by the way, is not the same thing as the modern intelligent design movement, which is actually something quite different. That is a kind of anti-evolution kind of God of the gaps theory. God of the gaps theory is where, when there's something we can't explain by science, they say, oh, well, God did it, which is, is okay, except it's a rather dangerous way to go, because you end up being a bit of a flat earther, because when we discover that the earth actually isn't flat, you, you start to look a bit foolish. So you have to be a bit careful with that. Um, anyway, one way of expressing the teleological argument, which demonstrates how the universe is very finely tuned to give rise to life, is called the anthropic principle. Again, who's heard of the anthropic principle? Yeah, even less. Okay, uh, the nub uh, of this principle is that in the very beginning of the Big Bang, Everything was amazingly fine-tuned to allow life to occur. It's all about quarks and anti-quarks and the exact rate of cooling and the precise conditions that enabled all the elements to form, especially carbon. Um, but it's way above my head. I can't even begin to pretend I understand it. But let me, let me quote from Stephen Hawking. Um, 
Why did the universe start out with so nearly the critical rate of expansion that separates models that recollapse from those that go on expanding forever? That even now, 10,000 million uh, years later, it is still expanding at nearly the critical rate. If the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in 100,000 million million, the universe would have uh, recollapsed before it ever reached its present size. And, and there's plenty more like that from very smart scientists that will blow your mind. Um, Anthony Collins writes, the existence of the universe as we know it rests on a knife edge of improbability. This then is the anthropic principle, the idea that our universe is uniquely tuned to give rise to human life, that the conditions that are necessary are actually there. Well, in looking at this to see you know, the kind of so what, um, Collins offers three responses to the anthropic principle. Dawkins only has one, and that's, that's the first of these. And, and this is the first response to this principle, which I think many scientists say is, is just a, a way of describing reality as we know it. Here's one. There may be an essentially infinite number of universes, either occurring simultaneously with our own or in some sequence with different values of the physical const uh, constants and maybe even dif different physical laws. We are, however, unable to, to observe these other universes. Obviously, we can't observe anything outside of our universe. Um, we can exist only in a universe where all the physical properties work together to permit life and consciousness. Ours is not miraculous. I mean, there's lots of them. It's simply an unusual product of trial and error. This is called the multiverse hypothesis. And this is what Dawkins argues. Uh, okay, that's the first one. The second explanation, if you like, for the anthropic principle is that there is only one universe, and this is it. It just happens to have all the right characteristics to give rise to intelligent life. And um, if it hadn't, we wouldn't be here discussing it, and so we're just very, very lucky. <laughs> okay, that's the second option. Uh, and the third is that there is only one universe, and this is it. The precise tuning of all the physical constants and physical laws to make intelligent life possible is not an accident, but reflects the action of the one who created the universe in the first place. So you've got kind of the atheist number one, actually sheer nonsense, non sequitur number two, and the, the kind of belief in God number three. Regardless of one's preferences for option one, two, or three, there is no question that this is potentially a theological issue. Stephen Hawking, again, Stephen Hawking said, the odds against the universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications. In A Brief History of Time, Hawkins also wrote, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe should have begun in just this way, except as the act of God who intended to create beings like us. It's kind of rather a bizarre statement from Richard Hawking, but there you are. But let's get back to these three options. Um, option one, multiverse. In this approach, if there is indeed a multiverse, that is, an infinite number of parallel universes, then, of course, the probability starts to get better because there's infinite numbers of them. So if there's infinite numbers of them, then the probability, instead of, being, instead of being very highly improbable, starts to become, oh, well, eventually it's probably going to happen. Um, the problem with the idea is that there's absolutely no evidence of any sort, uh, but it's true. Um, Collins says that while this option is logically defensible, the idea of near infinite number of unobservable universes strains credulity. 
Of course, those like Dawkins, who are categorically unwilling to accept an intelligent creator, persist in arguing for this. But it seems to me that such is not really a scientific argument, as it is more a philosophical stance that is resolutely unwilling to concede the possibility of option three, which talks about God. But anyway, uh, option two, well, the probability is so unlikely that almost anyone is agreed this is, it's not really an explanation at all. So um, we'll just forget that. So that leaves option three, in which the Big Bang itself seems to point strongly towards a creator, since otherwise the question of what came before is left unanswered. Now, the new atheists don't like you asking that question, because they say, well, that begs another question, well, then who created God? Well, okay, but then, then that's not an explanation either. I mean, the whole point is we're trying to understand these things that have happened, but at some point we posit a theory that says, well, if there is this unmoved mover, then that is an explanation. Whether you accept it or not is another matter. Um, so anyway, in, in the final thing that I like, one of Collins talks about, in trying to decide between a multiverse approach and the last approach which points to God, he uses an illustration of a philosopher called John Wesley. It goes like this. An individual faces a firing squad, and there are 50 expert marksmen aiming their rifles to carry out the deed. The order is given, so the, sh the, shot, the shots ring out, and yet somehow all of the bullets miss the condemned uh, individual and he walks away. Now, how could such a remarkable event be explained? Leslie suggests two possible alternatives which correspond to our option one and our option three in response to the anthropic principle. In the first place, there may have been thousands of executions uh, carried out on the same day, and even the best marksmen occasionally miss. Uh, so the odds just happen to be in favour of this one individual, and all 50 marksmen just happen to miss their target. The other option is that something more directed is going on, and the apparent poor aim of the 50 experts was actually intentional. Which seems more plausible? Right. As I said before, the anthropic principle does not equal proof that God exists. None of these do, but it sure does make it sound like something that is reasonable. Okay, let me uh, conclude, and then we can have some interaction. Um, one of the questions I think we must wrestle with is how do we know what we know? <laughs> is the material world all that there is? Is scientific naturalism the only reality? Obviously I don't think it is. Um, do empirical mechanistic explanations satisfy your deepest longings for meaning? I mean, they certainly don't satisfy mine. Uh, I, I see all around me hints of the supernatural what I like to call echoes of Eden. My longings for more, my longings for meaning, my longings for God don't make God real. I know that. But the fact that most people have these yearnings and longings is at the very least suggestive of the fact that such longings are capable of being met. Just as when I thirst, that longing is capable of being quenched. So when I yearn for love for meaning, for God, these things too are capable of being met. I would say that God has revealed enough, not all the proof you or I or everyone might want or think we need. But then again, you know, think of those who actually saw, again you may not believe it happened, but just run with me for a minute. Think of those who actually saw Jesus perform miracles. 
Did that mean, oh, yes, we all believe? No, it didn't. Half of them fell down and worshipped him and said, oh my gosh, you're the son of God. And the others decided to plot to kill him. So this idea, oh, there's not enough proof, there's no evidence. Well, it, you know, I'm not buying that. So uh, are Christians delusional? I'm sure some of them are. Uh, but is it intrinsically delusional to believe in God? I would have to say strenuously that it's not. Indeed, I believe passionately that a belief in a loving, powerful, just God is a reasonable belief. It's not something that can be proved by science or philosophy, but it is something that can be lived and experienced in relationship. You know, in a broad brush approach, the way I make sense of it all is in the language of story. How do you or I make sense of the world we're in? The fact that we are here, and the fact that we can reason and think and feel and have free will. By the way, free will is a, is a really good one we could explore. Um, because there's no such thing as free will if you're, if you're scientific determinist. But anyway, it seems to me that scientific naturalism has a story or framework that either doesn't answer these fundamental questions at all, or answers them in a way that says that at the end of, of the day, the only narrative is one of randomness and chance. There is nothing more than the material world, matter and energy. All we can experience and know is explicable on those terms. And I find that profoundly unsatisfying. It simply doesn't ring true to my experience of life and love or relationship. It doesn't make any sense out of suffering or joy, and I just can't find it a credible explanation of life. Now, again, of course, the fact that I don't like it or it, or it doesn't make sense uh, um, doesn't mean it's false and therefore gives me license to make up a god or any story that I like. Of course not. But I think there's plenty of evidence, maybe not of the strictly empirical, measurable, material, scientific type that the new atheists want, but nevertheless it's real. Evidence comes in many different ways. You know, when I look up into the night sky on a dark, clear night, I agree with the psalmist who says, at a primitive yet profound level, the heavens declare the glory of God. I can't explain that to you, but it's pretty profound. When I see a sunset or consider the waves of the ocean or the birds of the air, I'm in awe at the complexity and beauty of the world in which I live and breathe and have my being. And it all points inexorably for me to the Creator. I don't claim to know the hows of it all, but I do believe the story that explains something of the whys. Indeed, I believe that God has revealed enough for us to know him, experience him, and encounter him. You know, when I consider love and loss, passion and compassion, or when I enjoy a fine red wine or an extraordinary piano concerto, when I receive the gift of a, of a painting from a small child, or when I feel the presence of God like the breath of the wind, or see remarkable and inexplicable healing and forgiveness in broken relationships, I am forced to my knees. And the older I get, the more convinced I am, even though the more conscious I am of how much I don't know and of how many questions I can't answer. But I'm okay with that. I am a mere mortal before a holy and loving God who whispers to me through the cacophony of life's busy, conflicted, pain-filled, beautiful and broken world, I love you. And I, in response, say, I love you too. And with the man who came to Jesus for his daughter to be healed, said, Lord, I believe, help 
my unbelief. And it's that man, Jesus, in whom it all comes together and makes sense. For ultimately, my belief in God is founded not on cosmological, teleological, or moral arguments. Rather, it is grounded on a personal God, who is not hidden, but has made himself known supremely in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. The God who spoke in the beginning and said, let there be light. The God who is the unmoved mover, the ground of our being, is the eternal word made flesh in Jesus. God who became man, who was born, died, and raised from the dead. I'm, I'm kind of out of time for now, but I hope to pick up from here a little bit uh, in uh, three weeks' time. So thank you for listening, and uh, we'll have some questions or responses or comments. Okay. Thank you.